We are in Genesis 38. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. We're going to cover Genesis 38 and 39. And yes, I realize that's two chapters of the Bible. I have been questioning my own thoughts and actions this whole morning. Um, and last night and Friday and Thursday and, and yet Wednesday. And thank you, Johnny, uh, for helping me. Yeah, but we are here. We are here today, and we are in Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. But before we get to Genesis 38, I preached uh, about six weeks ago on Genesis 37. And we're in the midst of the story of Joseph, and I would actually say the story of God himself and how he brings about salvation for his people. This is the end of Genesis. This is the end of what I would contest, um, the foundations of all of Scripture. I don't think we can really contest that. It is the foundation of all scripture. It is the first book of the Bible. It is where we see God working um, in his people to establish his people, to root his people in faith and trust in his word. And so we see in Genesis 37, we saw that Joseph had some dreams. His brothers didn't like it. They threw him into prison. Well, actually, they sold him into slavery. He ended up in prison in, uh, uh, or not prison, he ended up in Potiphar's house. Uh, in Egypt, which is prison in a very roundabout way. But in the middle of those two things where his dreams happened and they threw him in the pit and he got sold to slavery, we met these two men, Reuben and Judah. Reuben being the firstborn of Leah and the firstborn of Jacob. And he, we see that Reuben is actually not a very faithful man. In fact, he's just trying to gain power and gain favor with his father because he made him a grievous mistake and trying to take over too soon. And then we see uh, him try to just persuade his brothers not to kill uh, their other brother so that he might actually gain some more favor from his father. Well, that doesn't go well because Judah steps in and is more convincing. He leads better, or at least, uh, you know, more powerfully. And what we see is Judah say, hey, let us sell him into slavery. And guess what? They sell him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. Jacob mourns for Joseph as he had died. That's what they're trying to convince him of, that the brothers are trying to convince him that Joseph is dead. And Jacob basically mourns like he has no other child. He ignores all of the blessings that God has given him, and he ignores uh, the other 11 uh, sons, the other uh, countless others. I don't know how many other children he has, but he ignores all of them for Joseph. For mourning Joseph's death, proposed death. And so that brings us to our story today. And uh, for the sake of time, I am not going to read all of Genesis 38 and 39 because that would be about 10 minutes of reading, uh, especially at my pace. But I do want to read Genesis 24, Genesis 38, 24 to 39 and all the way through the end of 39. So I'm not going to have you stand uh, because it's a lot of text. Uh, so listen, watch. Uh, we're going to be starting and ending in Genesis, starting in Genesis 38, ending in Genesis 39. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose the, uh, these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the, the midwife, midwife took and tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew his hand back, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard in Egyptian, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, had bought him from the Ishmaelites. I need water. Who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of an Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in sight, in the sight of, in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of the house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast his eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater than I in this house than, than I am, and nor has he kept anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he, she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he, took, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment, thank you, garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house. And she called to the men of, the house, of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as, I heard, as, soon as he heard that I lift up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought, have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he le left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And that and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
Now, our text is full of a whole bunch of details that I would love to explore with you. And if you have sat in um, Sunday school with us, you would know that I would spend a lot of time exploring those details. Uh, But here today, I have two points for you to hear. That from both of these chapters, 38 and 39, I want you to hear this. The Lord is near to the faithless and the faithful. The Lord is near to the faithless and the faithful. So this large text, we see the evidence of the Lord's working. Even though he's not mentioned many times in Genesis 38, which I'm about to summarize the first part of it. uh, We see God's hand working through Judah and around Judah and moving Judah and shaping Judah in the way of his likeness, right? Not in the unrighteous man that Judah has made himself to be, but in the righteous man of God. That we don't really see to come to fruition for another, you know, 40 or another 20 chapters, 10 chapters, sorry, doing my math wrong. Public math, it's not a smart thing to do. Write it down. Uh, But we do see right here, that the Lord is still near, even though he is not acting in faithfulness. So in this first portion, I want you to see this, that the Lord is near to the faithless. Not faithless as in non-elect or never going to accept the Lord, but faithless as in unregenerate heart that needs saving. The one who acts not in faith, the one who acts by impulse, the one who orchestrates his life according to his own desires. See, Judah was part of a chosen covenant people of God. He was Isaac, or he was Jacob's son. Isaac was his great, or it was his grandfather. His great grandfather was Abraham. He was a line in the line of patriarchs, the one who were carrying the blessing for the whole world. And yet he runs from God's blessing. And here we see the first intersection of, of Judah's life with Joseph. Joseph was exiled from his land. Judah just ran. Judah just ran from what he already had. Joseph was taken from what he had. And in that, he acted faithlessly. See, he had gone his own way, and we see this in the first six verses, first five verses of chapter 38. It says, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Right, he sees, he goes away from this place of blessing, the, the, from under the covering of his father, the patriarch, and he takes a wife for himself, an unnamed woman. And I want you to pay attention. When, when, you're, when you see an unnamed person in the Bible, it's probably important, but it's not important the way that you would think it's important. It's, it's important here because it reminds us of Genesis 9, going all the way back, where Noah curses Ham and curses the Canaanites. This woman is a Canaanite. She is a part of the cursed people, a people that need forgiveness, a people that will not see it unless they submit themselves to the Lord. See, Noah, when he cursed Ham, he cursed all of Canaan's descendants because of Ham's transgression. And in this case, she is outside of God's covenant people and therefore does not receive a name. But Judah, like like Esau and like Cain, in a lot of ways, goes and finds a daughter of Canaan to marry. Why is that important? I think it's important because if you go, we can we know this intuitively. If you go outside of God's promises, you will reap what God 
what you have sown, right? Not what God has promised you, but what something else, right? Usually death. And in this case, we experience that with his first two children. We've given Ur, he's given Ur and Onan, and then um, Shelah. Ur and Onan do what is wicked in the sight of the Lord, and what, is, what happens? They die. Because of the wickedness of their father, they follow in his footsteps. He, they left the promise because he left the promise. They probably didn't even know the promise, and so they had no impetus to really know about the promise. Fathers in this room, if you don't pass on the promises of God to your children, they will not hear it. And I promise you that they will have to be given it to by another father, another spiritual father. And so let me just encourage you as fathers, encourage your children to love the Lord. When you discipline your children, encourage them to see that Jesus, that God is gracious, that he is slow to anger. Embody these things, steadfast in his love for his children embody these things. I know you're not going to do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. I have four of my own. You can ask them. Or if they don't answer, ask my wife. But fathers, that's our call, that unless we do faithfully steward what we have been given, our sons, our daughters, then they will not know the Lord. They will have to come to know the Lord by some other means, but you have been placed there for God's glory to lead them to salvation, to lead them to faith. So do not depart from that path like Judah does. Marrying the wrong kind of woman who he, he, had, he had to know about this curse because guess what? Abraham told Isaac not to marry a Canaanite. <laughs> Isaac told Jacob not to marry a Canaanite. Esau heard this not to marry a Canaanite went and married a Canaanite. Look what happened to Esau. He kept walking in wickedness. But here's what I need you to see, is that this story, that this part of the narrative is not a one-off. Because if you think about it, you get one chapter of Judah, and you know from 37 to 50, except for that one, all about Joseph. Why is Judah important? Judah is important because he carries the seed of the woman in his loins. He carries the snake crusher. He is the one that will be blessed in Genesis 49 as the one who will never have the scepter depart from his hand. He is the one that Christ Jesus our Lord comes from, the Messiah that we must see, but we cannot see unless we are brought low. And this is a story, this, this chapter is about Judah being brought low, being humbled by his own indiscretions and sin. So th think with me for a second. How do we know that Jesus comes from Judah. Think about all the breadcrumbs in Scripture. Think about all of the places where we see Judah highlighted and Joseph not talked about, except for an, as an example. Judah is the one that we see because Judah is the one from which Jesus comes from. Revelation 5.5 tells us that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, David, the, the person that Christ is prefiguring, or Christ is uh, fulfilling. David is a part of the line of Judah. He is Israel's savior, who is Lord beyond measure, blessed beyond measure, gives grace without measure to those who are his. And Jacob in Genesis 49 blesses his children, skipping all of the good, all of the ones you think should have it, including Joseph. And he tells Judah this, 
in verse 8. Your brothers shall praise you. They shall bow down before you, and the, she- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Looking forward to the New Testament, we see, and we read it this morning, that Judah and David are both in Jesus' genealogy, not Joseph. It is Perez, not Ephraim. It is, those are the two sons. It is, it is Tamar. It is not the Egyptian given to Joseph. It is Bathsheba, the one whom David had adultery with. These women are not like, you know, high and mighty. They're not Esther. and They're not like these Esther type women. They are women that God associates with the lowly and the broken. And so even in the midst of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, we see that Jesus has come through a line of succession of brokenness of promise breakers. And yet in his death, his life, his resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus has brought to fruition this promise that the scepter will not depart from Judah, that God covenanted with Abraham back in Genesis 12 to bring about, to bless the nations. He is the long-awaited seed, the true and better Adam, the better Judah, the better Joseph, Moses, David. Name him, he's better. He's ruler over all, creator over all, the only savior, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one whom we worship today was foretold back in Genesis 3. Think about this. He is the fulfillment of every single breadcrumb on the path of salvation. He is the bread of life, in fact. He's the bread of life that Judah did not know at this time. He's the bread of life that he had no idea he was carrying within him, right? He carries the kingly line of the Messiah and yet tries to be king of his own throne. And even though Judah did not care about God or others, and you see this throughout the whole of Genesis 38, uh, the Lord is still near to him. He is near to the faithless. See, Judah spared no thoughts toward God. He had a promised land and a perfect blessing and yet left for something he wanted to make of his own to carve out his own way. He had only thoughts for his own pleasure, passions, desires, his feelings. He didn't spare thoughts or care about others. Think about this. When we go through Genesis 38, there's a couple of really key points here. He saw and he took the daughter of Shua. He didn't consider them. He didn't consider her. He didn't consider the curse. He didn't consider the woman. He just saw and took. He saw and took his veiled daughter-in-law. It's a pretty wicked man. He ignored the covenant family and made his own. He even shirked his responsibilities to the ones he was making. He was a selfish man who lived in selfishness. He's the epitome of selfishness in a lot of ways. He is the highest understanding of promise breaker also. He does not conform to the promise of God. He refuses to make good on the promise that he made to Tamar by giving his uh, youngest son to her. And then he tries and he fails to keep his promise to the prostitute harder than he tried to keep his promise to Tamar. As a result of all this promise breaking, God uses his sin to show him his unrighteousness and his need for grace. See, just death followed Judah. Nothing of life followed Judah. It was not until we got to our passage this morning when he realized that his righteousness was nothing. It was filthy rags. It was unrighteousness to the nth degree. But the Lord was near to him 
not in a visible sense, but he was disciplining him into his likeness, into God's likeness. And by his own providence, he saw to it that his plans would usurp, would override Judah's plans, just as he did for Jacob, just as he does for us. He would be the only source of salvation for Judah's sin-shattered, self-indulgent, neglectful self. Because Judah needs a rescue like we do. Judah needs grace alone like we do. So what do we learn from Judah in Genesis 38? I think we can learn a lot of surface-level things like don't sleep with prostitutes. It's obvious. Don't make promises and break them. Right? We should not do those things. But I want to explore something a little harder. We should pursue the promises of God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we do not do that, you can promise to reap what you sow. Instead of seeking our own way in the world and placing our efforts and making ourselves happy, we ought to pursue the highest and best happiness, the highest and best for us, Promise to us when we seek the face of God Almighty. When we place our trust in Jesus, we are not acting like Judah. We are finding ourselves in Christ. So Judah stands as a pillar of reminder. If you act like this, you will reap death. But if you find yourself in Christ, Jesus our Lord, the one who comes from Judah, ironically enough, you will find life and life abundantly. But the Lord is near the faithless. And that's good news for us. We as chosen people of God still fall. We, the chosen people of God, still need to repent of when we do wrong, when we make light of things, when we ignore our responsibilities. We cannot make these faithless choices when we keep the fear of the Lord before our eyes. See, God empowers his people to live according to his word, a word that Judah knew. He empowers us now to live according to his commands and obey them. Because when we live outside of his commands, we will reap what we sow. We do not obey him. And if we continue to not obey him, we may not be of his fold at all. We might be part of that lost people who cry out, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. See, the Lord's sheep know his voice. So when he calls them not to gossip, not to slander, not to commit adultery, lust, covet, you name any vice that you want to, any sin, they are compelled to reject those things because of the spirit within them. They are compelled to reject the ways of living like the world and, re and reject those patterns of faithlessness that lead to sin because the Lord is calling them by, their, by his word. If you do not know his word, you will not know what is right. If you do not know his word, you will not know what is faithful. Here we see an example of faithlessness in Judah. Do not be those people. Pursue the Lord's promises. The pursue the, the promise, very simple promise that you seek the face of the Lord and he will be near to you. You will find him. But when he says to love we love. When he says to show kindness, be gentle, have pity, be merciful, display meekness, be patient, his sheep regard his voice above all other voices. 
They ignore the inner voice sometimes, and they call their consciences even to change. As his people, his sheep, all of our efforts should pursue the promises of God. Because if they don't, then we are acting in faithlessness, which we all do. And so that that means we have a lot of hope, right, in this. Because Jesus came to rescue sinners, to rescue the faithless, to give us life, to bind up the brokenhearted, to give strength to the weak, to bring them within his will if they just seek his face. So if you are weary today and you don't know what you're doing, you're kind of joyless walking through life, have you been seeking the face of of the Lord who made you, the one who has saved you from your sins? That should override your joyless circumstances because guess what? The joy of the Lord comes from the strength of the Lord. Not from your own pulling up your own self by your bootstraps. It doesn't come from you. It can't. I promise it'll just continue to fail. For those of you who are trying to avoid the wise path, maybe for an easier path, a shortcut, I'm going to encourage you here to not be like Judah and make your own way, but to run the race set before you faithfully. Do not dismiss the strength of what God can provide you. And he tells us this in Isaiah 41.10. He says, I will strengthen you, right? He says, I will give you everything that you need. And when we run hard after the Lord, when we run hard for Lord, the Lord Jesus, he is the one who proves himself over and over and over as the faithful gift giver who satisfies eternally. He gives faith and is near to the faithless. And you might be here today and you might be thinking, I don't know this, Jesus. I am constantly trying to figure my way through the world. I don't know what to do with my circumstance. Can I let you in on a secret? Neither does anybody else. Except for this, they know what the next faithful step is, and that is trusting the Lord as they walk. Not trusting in their own thoughts and understanding, but trusting the Lord as they walk. If you're, I don't even know what I'm talking about. This all sounds like a bunch of Christianese. Let me tell you, God created everything good. Can you imagine that with me, with the brokenness of our world? With the longing in our world, can you imagine that God created everything good? Like, uh, I have a feeling that tartness, like a tart uh, fruit, and no, this goes against my brother. Tart fruit is, is actually a result of the fall. Because sweetness, sweet fruit is like the best kind of good that you can have, right? But you, I, I, I don't understand why people like tart fruit, except for that it's a part of sinful na- nature. And so we'll, we'll pre- <laughs> Sorry, Corey. Um, but can you imagine everything being good and sweet and not disappointing and never falling and satis- failing and to be satisfying? Can you imagine that? I can't because I have a sin-sick mind that needs redemption. I'm constantly asking the Lord to repair my broken soul, to organize my thoughts, not in a pragmatic way or an easy way, but one towards the Lord himself in faithfulness. But God created the world good, and yet man came into it, his very good creation, and messed it all up. Not just messed it all up, they tried to actually, they have one, one command. Can you follow the one command? My children can't follow one command. I can't follow one command sometimes. Don't eat of the tree. And what do they do? They eat of the tree. 
They eat of the tree because they think that that is going to be good. It looks good to their eyes, but it is not good for them. It's tart. So, but with this, with this usurpation of God and his promises of his command, they actually lose the worst, the, the worst of it. They get kicked out of the garden, but where the garden was is where God was. They lost the unmitigated presence of the Lord. They could not walk in the garden in the cool of the day with their Lord any longer. That's what they lost. They lost any way to have personal one-on-one time with the God of creation. And yet, here we are. It took, you know, however long, depending on how you understand the ages, 39 books of the Bible before we hear about anything that was going to be absolutely redeeming. You hear it talked about in types and shadows that there will be a new Adam, that there'll be a snake crusher, that there will be a Messiah to come and save you from your sins, that there will be no scepter that departs from Judah. Over and over and over, you'll hear about these breadcrumbs, but it's until Jesus comes, until he dies a perfect, a death that he does not deserve. He's a perfect man. Not perfect in the way you think of it and the way that I think of it, like nothing sullying him. And yet he died a death that you and I had to die so that those who put their faith in him get his righteousness. The perfect good that was made at the beginning has been given to us as his people. He stayed in the grave for three days. That's by, also by precedent. I won't, I won't rehearse all that right now. And then when he rose again from the the grave by his own strength and power, by God's own will, guess what he did? He walked amongst his people for 40 more days to make sure that, hey, everybody knows I'm alive. 40 days he spent amongst other people. He ascended into heaven after those 40 days. And now he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. That means that you can't be let go. If you're a Christian in this day, there is no none of this, um, I can fall away from Jesus. No, you are saved or you are not saved because you are in Christ who is the ultimate savior or you are not in Christ at all. And so rejoice in that. Those of you who are been saved by grace. If you have not been saved by grace, you have the opportunity today by trusting this man for his righteousness that he will give to you freely. You must confess that he is Lord and shirk your sins. Turn away from your life and move towards Christ. Devote yourself to him and he will bring you near. That's not something Judah does in this passage. He does it later. He's actually the epitome of faithless works. The works that we all try to do to gain God's favor. Have you ever heard this before? I'm a good man. I, I'm sure God will excuse all my mistakes. He says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Be holy as God is holy. No offense, but you aren't perfect and you ain't holy. And I promise you can't earn enough favor from people to amount to any heap of glory for God. You can't. God You need God himself. And so do I. Judah needs God himself. The grace of God for salvation. And in Genesis 39, we encounter the exact opposite of what happens in Genesis 38. We encounter Joseph. We encounter 
the Lord, the Lord's visible presence with him, the Lord's tangible presence with jo- Joseph. And we get to Genesis 39, and we see a huge contrast that the Lord is not just near to the faithless, but he empowers the faithful. So the Lord empowers the faithful undeniably. And you see these in the first six verses. How many times are we actually told the Lord was with Joseph? The Lord made everything he did succeed. The Lord was with Joseph so much that it was undeniable to even Potiphar, who is a minister. He's a minister of death. He's the captain of the guard. He's not exactly uh, just like Joe Schmo Egyptian. But even he recognizes the Lord's presence with him and reaps the blessing of blessing the blessed one. Now I'm going to unwind that for a second. God promises in Genesis 12, 3, that he will bless those who bless you and he will curse those who curse you. Potiphar blesses Joseph for his good works that God is doing through him. And what, it, what happens? He is blessed. The Lord is with Joseph and he causes all that he does to succeed. He even blesses the Egyptian's house, his land, his people for Joseph's sake. Why? So that Joseph might be a conduit of God's grace to these lost and dead people. See, Joseph knows the Lord's with him. That's the difference between him and Judah. Joseph knows that the Lord is there. The Lord is near him. The Lord is empowering him to live by grace. Judah didn't, if you notice, he's only, you know, encountering God through death. He's only encountering God's wrath because he's living outside of the promise. But Joseph is, has such a tangible understanding of the Lord's presence that no one can deny it. He couldn't deny that Nobody could deny it because he cared well for his master. He cared well for his house, the land, and was elevated to head slave over the whole house only respect with him to Potiphar, which we're going to hear the same kind of language again. Be listening for when he is elevated to second in command over at Pharaoh's house. Verse 5 tells us that the Lord blessed the foreigner's house because of Joseph and because of Potiphar. And th- this whole thing is a beautiful orchestration of God's grace to the faithless because of the faithful. And yet, we see the trial, Right? Where Judah's trial was his own lust, Joseph's trial is to not give in to lust. Where Judah's trial was not to take what he wanted, Judah, uh, Joseph's trial is to resist what he can have. See, Judah, Joseph was removed from his land, taken to this land of death, enslaved by a people of death, and yet still sought the welfare of his master. That's a mark of faithfulness if I've ever seen one. And the Lord's nearness enables Joseph to endure the temptation completely, completely to take over his master's house. Because guess what he says in verse eight? He says, he refused after being propositioned. He refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. In other words, he's elevated to like number two, number one, number two. We know he's number two because of the next line. Nor has he kept anything back from me except for you because you are his wife. To take the wife of the man of the house, we've already seen it condemned in Reuben. Remember that 
Reuben actually tried to do this to Jacob. He slept with his father's concubine and tried to take over the, the house from Jacob. And guess what? Jacob curses him for it. Jacob says, you will come at nothing in Genesis 49 because you defiled my couch. But Joseph looks at the couch of the master who has brought him there and says, that's his. And ignores and resists the temptation to take over the whole house. See, he was handsome in form and appearance. And I think this is really important if you're really paying attention to the Bible. Because there are a couple other people that are named handsome in form and appearance. One of them being his mom, Rachel. The other being Saul. And another being David. And then we're told that the Messiah of all things in Isaiah 53 is told is called somebody who is not one to be looked at or looked upon. He is not desirable to the eyes. But Joseph, because he's desirable to the eyes, wells up some lust within the Potiphar's wife. And like Judah's lust could have been fulfilled. It could have been taken all the way home. But Joseph resists because why? The fear of the Lord is before his eyes. The fear of the Lord is so, uh, the blessing of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, it's all so tangible to him. He can't get away from it. And so he feared the Lord would take his presence from him, even though we know that the Lord is near. He feared the Lord, the blessing of the Lord would come, become a chastisement, something to uh, bring him to his knees instead of something being a blessing to all. He, unlike Judah, kept the fear of the Lord before him and so that he would not depart from the race that was set before him. Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and Joseph is a wise man. Wise man beyond his years. But Joseph is not Jesus. Joseph, while he rejects, while he opens not his mouth, while he uh, continues to just be carried along by the providence of God, he is not Christ. He is merely a breadcrumb pointing us to him. He, like Jesus in many ways, he is like Jesus in many ways, but he is primarily in this one, that he did not open his mouth and protest to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife's accusations. Notice she says like three different ways. How many, like the, the story, he's tell, she tells the story three times. And all three times it's different. He came to laugh at us. See, he came to laugh at me. He was not nice to me. Like, it was like, I'm trying to get you to come along and I'm trying to get you to believe me because Potiphar, guess what? Favored Joseph. He had to be convinced somehow. And it basically broke Potiphar's house because of this line. This is the way your servant treated me. It's almost like he didn't believe him, believe her until, the, until that line. But it's precisely because he chose the good of the house and the glory of the Lord that he endured another trial of false accusations and lies. He was brought into this house by false accusations and lies, and he is now going to leave the house because of false accusation and lies. Just like Jesus was rejected by his brothers, by the Jews. He was the very fullness of life rejected by men who was falsely accused, who endured the cross, who had no sin in him because he is a perfect man and endured the death of a sinner of a not-so-perfect man. 
Worse, he took on all the blame for every sin of the world, particularly for those who would believe in him. But he did not open his mouth. He took the pain and humbled himself to the point of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross for you and I. And so, to act in faithlessness because of what God did so faithfully, right? He continues to be faithful with you. You may feel lost and disconnected. You may be feeling down and just honestly just kind of rejected by other people. Your Savior, He endured the same. Your Savior, He was still faithful even though He asked, Father, if not my will, yours be done, but can you take this cup from me? Because he knew the cup that he was going to take, the separation from God, just like Adam and Eve endured in the garden. He did not want to have to endure that. And yet he did, faithfully, fully, for you and for I, for me, you and I. Um, But our God, he doesn't just say, hey, I've saved you, now revel in it. Rejoice in that. He says, go and tell others. What did Judah not do? He didn't tell anybody about God. So much so that his sons died because of their faithlessness. What did Joseph do? He didn't have to say a thing because everybody knew that the Lord was with him. Right? His, his acts were not something that were a part of, uh, of normal Egyptian standards. And think about being a slave in a house where you are... Uh, you're trying to serve this other person and most slaves just try to do what they need to do to get by, right? To live another day so they can find their freedom. Joseph just keeps pouring goodness into Potiphar's house. The Lord, even though you have rejected him on multiple uh, accounts, even though you continue to sin and to find selfishness within you, the Lord hasn't rejected you. The Lord will continue to be faithful to you. If you believe in his name and you take his righteousness upon yourself and claim no righteousness of your own. See, bring the fear of the Lord before the eyes of the faithless. Start with yourself and then take it to the world because there is nothing else that you need. There is nothing else that you have to have. And you might be arguing with me as I say this, like I would. I, I, I intentionally sit and listen to sermons, uh, sidebar. When you listen to sermons and somebody says something so directly, you need to go, where does the Bible say that? Does the Lord tell me to do these things? Guess what he says? He says, to seek his face above all other faces. faces. He says, you shall not have any idols before me. He says, there are no other gods. Why are you trying to make them? In so many ways, There are so many things that we continue to build our lives upon that are not God, that are faithless acts. And we need to be acting in faithfulness. And so you might be thinking, well, how does that directly apply to me? I'm not sure. It might be that you're a mom and you're frustrated with your children. It It might be a mom that's frustrated with your children and it comes out, that frustration. And so you discipline out of frustration instead of disciplining in gentleness instead of turning their eyes back to the Lord. It it might be a father who feels really tired when they come home from work. You might need to 
realize that the Lord is your strength. And that your tiredness is just a good sign of good work. And that that good work should be brought down and passed on to your children, that ethic of work. Not so that you can be glorified, not so that they can make a good name for themselves in the world, but so that the Lord might be known. And the fear of the Lord might be kept before their eyes. So, when we leave this place, I want to encourage you with this, that the Lord isn't here. Whether you see him or not, whether you know that tangibly right now or not, the Lord is near. He might be shaping and molding you in a way that you can't see. He might be like bringing a two by four across your head. But he is near. And the Lord himself promises that. Let us pray.